0: Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to host tonight's special forum on Why History Matters as part of the Sydney Ideas Series. Tonight's distinguished panellists are here as guests of the Department of History in the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry in the Faculty of Arts as well as the US Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. So I would like to thank both groups for co-presenting this special forum tonight. The panel discussion will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have two microphones set up at the bottom of the aisle, so please come down to the microphones and queue with your questions after the discussion. Um, The lecture is being, or the panel is being recorded for the university's website, so please keep your questions clear and concise at the microphone. The next Sydney Ideas event in the calendar is the start of our Key Thinkers Lecture Series. This is a new series of free lectures on Wednesday nights in the new Law School Building on the main campus. University of Sydney academics from a range of disciplines will share their specialised knowledge in a 45 minute lecture on an exceptional thinker who has informed their research and teaching. We start Key Thinkers with Professor Tony Asparamurgis from Economics on John Maynard Keynes on the 5th of August, so next Wednesday. Then we have lectures on Marx, Galileo and Beethoven program for the rest of August. All are welcome to attend this free lecture series and no bookings or registration is required. But for tonight, I'm very pleased to now welcome Professor Glenda Sluger, Professor of International History here at the University of Sydney, who will chair tonight's panel on why history matters. Thank you, Glenda.
1: Well, good evening, and you'll get to meet the people that matter tonight, the historians that matter in just a few moments. So I'm Glenda uh, Sluger, and I'm a historian at the University of Sydney, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the categorical people on whose land the university was built. I'd also like to thank the United States Study Centre and the History Department at the University of Sydney for supporting this event. So let's get to the nub of the matter. History is hot. That's why there's so many people here. When pictures of the newly elected Barack Obama fingering histories of FDR and Lincoln began to circulate the globe, historians all over the world breathed a sigh of self-interested satisfaction. A man who read history, who thought it important to understand the past in order to reshape the future, and his own personal destiny. Both FDR and Abraham Lincoln have once again taken a high profile in American political discussion. And since the GFC, the Great Depression and the New Deal in particular have been plumbed by pundits and politicians alike, searching out solutions to the economic, environmental and social challenges facing not just American society but all of us. History and politics is the turn that this theme of why history matters is going to take tonight. And I've got four United States historians of America lined up just down here who are going to come up one at a time as I I introduce them and a special guest visitor from uh, our own shores, each of whom will have a chance in a minute to talk to you about their own work. And so this event was set up really as a chance, as a forum forum, Uh, in which they could talk about their work and engage in these larger questions, history and politics. So as Meredith said, you'll get a chance to ask some questions a little bit later on in the evening. But let's start with introducing them because even that's going to take a while given their eminence and productivity. So first up, in good old basketball fashion, I'd like Jim Campbell, James T. Campbell, to come on up. He is Edgar E. Robinson Professor in United States History at Stanford University. His research focuses on the long history of interconnections and exchange between Africa and America, a history that began in the earliest days of the transatlantic slave trade and continues into our own time. You can sit down, Jim. (laughs) I have to say, his most recent book, and you'll know that as I introduce these people, that most recent is code for they've written a lot. So his most recent book, Middle Passages... African American Journeys to Africa won numerous prizes, amongst which uh, he he also became a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History for this book in 2007. And in recent years, Jim's research has moved in the direction of so-called public history as he looks at how societies tell stories about their pasts, not only in textbooks and academic monographs, but at historic sites, museums, memorials, movies, and political movements. In 2007, he won the Rhode Island Community and Justice Award for chairing Brown University's Steering Committee on Slavery and Justice. And he will talk a bit about that tonight. Next up, Jonathan Hanson. Jono? Thank you. I've called him Jono for his uh, period in Australia. Jono is a lecturer in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and Faculty Associate at the David Rockefeller Centre for Latin American Studies at Harvard. He's the author of The Lost Promise of Patriotism, Debating American Identity, a book which tried to recover the importance of internationalism for the American past. His most recent work is at its most topical, a history of how the United States came to possess Guantanamo Bay. He also writes op-eds for the New York Times and, and the London Guardian. Fitzhugh Brundage, William B. Unstead, Professor of History. at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and a prize-winning author of, most recently, The Southern Past, A Clash of Race and Memory. He was also uh, named one of the top young historians. I have to say, it's a sign of how long it takes an historian to mature, I thought, in some ways, but you are young. (laughs) And he's just begun work on a new topic, the history of torture. And I shouldn't say that with a smile. David W. Blight. Well, if you haven't heard about David, where have you been this week in Sydney? David has done the media blitz. On Thursday night, he was at the State Library disquisitioning on memory and history. And this morning, you may have enjoyed his musical choices on Radio National with Margaret Throsby. And if you didn't catch him, he is Class of 1954 Professor of American History at Yale University. He is director of the Gilda Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, and he is one of the foremost authorities on the U.S. Civil War and its legacy. He is the author, most recently, of Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, which received eight book awards, including the Bancroft Prize, the Abraham Lincoln Prize, and the Frederick Douglass Prize. He is also a frequent book reviewer for the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, etc., etc., and has written many articles on abolitionism, American historical memory, and African American intellectual and cultural history. And now, our surprise guest for the evening, except if, unless you read the actual a promo for the, for the debate. Last but never least, the man who made history politically sexy long before Barack Obama. <laughs> New South Wales' own former Premier, the History Premier, Bob Carr. So in case you've been living in another country for a while, Bob Carr was Premier of New South Wales from 1995 to 2005. And according to his Wikipedia page, and this is how historians do their research these days, he holds the record for the longest continuous service as Premier of New South Wales. Only Sir Henry Parks has served longer, but he held the office on five separate occasions. Bob Carr has been described as the very model of a modern Labour Premier, an articulate and powerful, that was never ran, powerful public performer who identified himself with the contemporary po- policy issues of education and the environment. Historians remember fondly that it was Bob Carr who made the teaching of Australian history compulsory in New South Wales, secondary schools, and who introduced lucrative state-level prizes for the writing of history. Bob Carr is also the author of several books, Thought Lines and My Reading Life. He is an acknowledged expert, and at this point the Wikipedia entry says, citation needed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) On certain aspects of the political history of the United States, especially Abraham Lincoln, whose second inaugural address he quoted in his resignation speech. Uh, and for the purposes of our gathering, it is perhaps as important to note that he is a charter member of the Chester A. Arthur Society, a U.S. political trivia group named for one of the most obscure U.S. presidents. I'd never heard of him. All right, so off we go. I'm going to sit down and join the. Okay, so um, I hope you can still hear me. We're going to start, I'm going to give everybody a chance to uh, tell you a bit about the kind of work they do in the context of our concerns tonight, because I think one of the most interesting things in these discussions is to to broaden our empirical knowledge, in fact, of what is going on around the world, and in this case in in, in the context of America and particularly in terms of uh, debates about the relationship between history and politics. So I'm going to start with um, David, right here, there we are, okay. So, uh, David, you've been deeply involved in public discussions about the history of the Civil, of the civil War in America, engaging in particular the ideological divisions of the Civil War and the Lost Cause tradition, which identifies uh, with the Confederate pro slavery past of American history, and which, as you've shown, is still very much alive in neo Confederate organizations on the web, among white supremacist groups, and even among mainstream American politicians. I thought you might want to tell us a bit about your public engagement with the history of the American Civil War and how you saw your role as an historian. Uh, d- just in, in the Australian context with uh, that kind of um, context, that kind of problem would raise issues about hist- uh, historical reconciliation. if mm-hmm. you know. So do th- th- these questions come up in the work you're, mm-hmm. you're doing as a public historian?
2: Well, they do indeed, but let me first just say How wonderful it is to be at a university and in a city where big ideas like this matter to so many people. Uh, Frankly, uh, this is not always the case in every community in the United States, to be honest. Um, Yes, reconciliation uh, matters a great deal uh, after great conflicts like the Civil War in America. Over 600,000 Americans died in our Civil War. Uh, More than a million were wounded. Uh, Virtually every family North and South were touched, affected, um, uh, devastated by this four years of war. Uh, It it caused the transformation of American society and the Constitution and the Republic itself. Therefore, uh, any attempt to reconcile such bloodshed is hugely important, and I think Reconciliations from great conflicts like this, whether they're in the 19th century, whether they're much older, whether they have to do with the birth and death of modern nations, whether they have to do with traumatic genocides, any time a society can manage the politics of reconciliation that is to be cherished uh, and embraced and studied and understood, which is much of what some of us do But also the case of the American Civil War shows us that sometimes reconciliations can also come with great cost. The reconciliation of our civil war in the United States came at the cost of the liberties and the rights, the freedoms of the very people, uh, the more than four million slaves and their descendants that that war freed. One of the ways we reconciled our greatest and most divisive conflict was to find a way to reconcile around the valor of the soldiers on both sides and to kind of share a story of sacrifice, of mutual sacrifice, but also at the same time to create, as we did, a culture of forgetting the deepest roots, the deepest causes of what that war was about, which was a problem of racial slavery. And we also managed to forget in many ways for a couple of generations and more, the principal results of that war, which was the freedom of four million people and the transformation of the very idea of human quality. Today in America, just to conclude, every American every day walks in the land of the 14th Amendment. And now don't worry if you don't know what the 14th Amendment is, because most Americans don't either. Uh, The 14th Amendment is the amendment in our Constitution that came about because of emancipation that says we have equality before the law. Two-thirds of all of our litigation in courts are 14th Amendment litigation. Every American every day walking any street, working in any profession, lives and works in a land that lives under the umbrella of that 14th Amendment, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, This idea of just how equal we can be before law is the most enduring legacy, in some ways, of that war. And sometimes we simply live in a state of not even understanding it or even awareness of it.
1: How has your own work um, intervened in the kinds of discussions that have gone on about the Civil War? Well, I don't
2: know how much it's intervened. I mean, we have to be modest, uh, frankly, in understanding how much historians actually control these debates. I have a feeling that in Australia maybe it's more so than in the United States. I've tried to intervene as as Fitz and others in helping uh, my readers and my students and in the public arena. And we all do a lot of this in the states now in speaking to to broad public audiences. I've tried to intervene in helping us understand that uh, uh, there are great costs in evading and erasing the most difficult traumatic parts of our past. What really happened in our culture is that the story of slavery as a cause and emancipation of those slaves as a result of our Civil War was all but erased from the official national narrative in our society of what that war was about. And by official, I mean the way it was taught in schools, the way it was presented in in political rhetoric, the way it was fashioned in popular literature, the way it was even presented in early modern museums. But I'm only one part of a, actually a large group of historians now studying this problem of historical memory. The Civil War is only one, perhaps the most important, uh, conflict that we've had to face in our past. And frankly, most Americans still have difficulty facing this part of our past in a, in a full sense because it forces us to realize that we have a history often as tragic and as divisive and as bloody as anyone else, in spite of the fact that most people want to see American history, most Americans want to see American history as essentially a narrative or story of progress, always getting better, uh, always improving, always showing the world a model of that progress. Our Civil War is a story of when that progress died and was destroyed, the first American republic created out of our revolution was destroyed in our Civil War, and the emancipation of slaves forced a recreation and a redefinition of a second republic. It's not always the way most Americans want to remember it.
0: Well, Jim, if I could turn
1: to you at this point, I mean, you've been involved uh, directly in, uh, at your own university in dealing with the past and specifically the past of slavery. Can you talk a bit about that work and how it relates to what you...
3: Sure. I was teaching at Brown University, which is in Rhode Island, in New England. Um, uh, If you don't know where Rhode Island is, don't don't worry, most Americans have no idea where it is. Uh, It is... I'm not making this up. It is one of the 50 states. It is smaller in its land area than the city of Sydney. Um, One of the things that Rhode Islanders and New Englanders have forgotten is the fact that slavery was not merely a southern institution. For Americans, as I'm sure for people here, uh, the term conjures a set of southern images of plantation homes and so forth. But slavery existed in all 13 colonies. It existed for a considerable time in all 13 of the original states. Uh, The city of New York, to take one example, at the time of the American Revolution, was I think over 20 percent enslaved. Again, that's not how we think of the story. Slavery existed in New England, uh, and in Rhode Island in particular, uh, the the state became a very important center of slave trading. Of those ships that were North American in origin in the transatlantic slave trade, and that's a fairly small proportion compared to the Portuguese or British, but of those ships that were North American in origin, about two thirds of them came from one colony and state, and that was Rhode Island. And that's a history that had been completely effaced. Uh, from our collective memory, and so that's one context. There was a second context that was relevant here, and that was the context of the debate over slavery reparations. Uh, As I'm sure some of you are aware, uh, there is a movement in the United States. It percolates up periodically, uh, then sort of goes into temporary recession, over the payment of monetary reparations for slavery. And in the early 2000s, there was a great great amount of publicity around this issue after several groups of activist African Americans filed lawsuits in U.S. federal courts seeking monetary damages from corporations that had profited from slavery and related industries. Now, those, uh, those lawsuits have all been dismissed from federal court now on a variety of legal grounds, the most important of which is statute of limitations. But when they first came out, they generated an enormous amount of controversy and sort of talk radio, a lot of people frothing. Uh, And it became one of the terrains for the kind of Americans' ongoing history wars, uh, uh, the kind of unreconciled problem of race that we have in our society. So those two contexts, one a historical context about slave trading and New Englanders' complicity in it, and one in the early 2000s, a very bitter and divisive, national debate over slavery reparations. So, the university where I was teaching at that time, Brown University in Rhode Island, it was once called the College of Rhode Island, became an epicenter of those, uh, both of the historical and of the contemporary uh, issue. The first of the class action lawsuits that was filed, in fact, uh, was filed against Fleet Bank of Boston, which when you trace it back, you realize that it was originally founded in Rhode Island by the same people who founded the college where I was teaching. And so there was a lot of uh, questions about what was the university's relationship with the slave trade, threats of lawsuits. In fact, there were threats against Yale, Harvard, and Brown that there would be lawsuits filed against these universities and so forth. Most American universities uh, wanted no part of this issue. Uh, They realized it was very divisive, they feared if they started to talk about it they would certainly either antagonize their alumni donors or antagonize the students and they sort of hoped that the issue would go away. Brown had a president, still has a president, a woman named Ruth Simmons who is as it happens, the first African-American woman to be the president of an Ivy League university. She is, though she doesn't wear this on her sleeve, a great-grandchild of slaves herself. And, but she's also a believer in universities, and so in the middle of this flap, uh, she appointed a committee of faculty, people, very, very visibly, very publicly, uh, and asked it to conduct a three-year historical investigation of the university's historical relationship to slavery in the transatlantic slave trade. And at the same time, to organize public programs that would help our students and the wider community think about the meaning of that history in the present in reflective and academically rigorous ways. So not only did we do a lot of research, but we organized literally dozens of uh, public programs, including one, actually, with a, a scholar from... Sydney Dirk uh, Moses, who worked, who was working at that time on the issue of the Aborigine apology here. So we had a program about National Sorry Day in Australia. At the end of that time, we uh, produced a report, and it was just a very interesting kind of, in, in effect, a local university-based truth commission to uh, uncover, make public the. Uh, nature of its historical relationships to slavery and the slave trade. It turned out that there were a lot of them. And um, to try to, instead of turning that into something that we tried to hide, to actually bring it forward as something that we could reflect on and talk about in the present. If you're interested, and I know everyone in the world uses, e- you know, uses the Internet now, if you just go to brown.edu slash slaveryjustice, one word, You can go to the website and you can read the report. You can see excerpts of the various uh, public events that we staged. And we also took, this was really quite moving, one of the things that we discovered was 1764, the year that the university was founded by the most important donors were the Brown Brothers of Providence, the Brown Brothers also sent a slave ship to West Africa that year. And we found all of the historical records from that slave ship, uh, which was a disastrous voyage. About two thirds of the Africans on the voyage perished, disease and an insurrection. And we put all of those documents on the web with sort of supporting material. And again, it's in the spirit of what David said, you know, that you can try to evade these uh, these questions, but like the return of the repressed, it comes back. And I think, you know, Ruth Simmons did something very courageous in saying, look, universities are places that have the capacity and the obligation to try to both talk truthfully about their past and to engage their students and the wider community and reflective dialogue about it. i just
1: ask a quick follow-up question. So what happened with the apology?
3: Oh, well, so the, the, this is actually a very interesting question. It's very germane, obviously, here, because as I gather, questions about apology are um, front and center. The committee made a series of recommendations, most of which, in fact, are related to the university's procedures and and so forth. You can read them on the web, most of which are in the process of being implemented. But one of the issues that we talked about a lot and ultimately couldn't come to an agreement on was whether the university should also make a formal apology. Now, one of the things that made this tricky is... That the person most likely to make such an apology would be the president of the university, who was herself African American, and that might have looked a little silly. Um, but we also had a lot of discussions about what it is that apologies do, what is it that they mean. And I'm sure this will come up tonight, and I would very much like to hear the thoughts of people in the audience. Look, in apology, all of, us, all of us, in fact, have a pretty good intuitive understanding of what apologies do. We've all had ones that we thought were meaningful. We've all gotten them that we thought were empty. Uh, we've all been aggrieved when we didn't get one that we thought we were entitled to. And I think uh, th- this issue has boiled up uh, in the United States in a variety of contexts. Apologies can be empty talk. They can be empty words, cheap talk. On the other hand, sometimes uh, failure or refusal to offer apology can itself be an enormously divisive thing as you in Australia have seen. So I I hope that what we ended up saying to the university was that we felt a formal acknowledgement uh, on the part of the university was essential, but we avoided using the word apology. and so, again, I hope that we might talk a little bit about this, what apologies do, what they don't do. There has since the Brown Report been a rash of institutional and state and now U.S. congressional apologies for slavery, but they've been conspicuously devoid of any commitment to present or future action. So perhaps we can talk about it.
1: Well, that actually brings us quite nicely to Jonah's work on Guantanamo Bay, because I mean, I'd like you to, to, to tell the audience a bit about how you got involved in that, but in, in some op-ed pieces recently, you've been talking about keeping Guantanamo Bay open for the purposes of fact-finding and apology um, projects.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, one of the signal characteristics of our President Obama, who I indeed like, is that he is very forward-looking. Um, and right now he is weighing whether or not and how much to look into the past at, a, uh, at Guantanamo Bay and, and trying to decide if he does that, what effect that will have on his domestic and global political agenda. And uh, to the chagrin of many of the people on the American left, uh, I guess to my own chagrin, he seems to be leaning against looking into what happened at Guantanamo Bay right now. Um, in order not to alienate so many of the people he needs to forward his domestic and global political agenda. But let me back up a little bit first by saying thank you all for coming. Um, I'm astounded by the interest and knowledge Australians have in American history and more than a little humbled by it. Um, And I'm indeed grateful for you all, uh, bit to you all for being here. So in 2003, I published a book to thunderous silence
3: um,
4: (laughs) on American patriotism. Uh, And the burden of that book, uh, the the, the book took up the subject of a group of American leftists a a hundred years ago who were debating the meaning of patriotism, civic identity, what it meant to be American, and so on. And this came out just as we were going to war and I had great expectations that their debate, these guys were arguing that patriots could actually be critical of their country rather than towing the line. Post, Post-Vietnam, most of the American left has ceded the rhetoric of patriotism to the American right. And the group that I addressed in that first book, Eugene Debs, Jane Addams, W. B. Du Bois, William James, John Dewey, and others refused to do so and thought that the rhetoric of patriotism could be marshaled uh, in the cause of progressive reform. Well, World War II rolled over them like a juggernaut. Uh, and, and their argument sort of faded away. Um, well, in the year 2004, the next year, I was fishing around for the topic of the next book, and I happened to have a fellowship, and so I had the luxury of reading broadly. Just as the Guantanamo News was breaking, not just Guantanamo News, actually, but Abu Ghraib, too, and as the Rasul case was pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, Uh, Some of you may remember in that Rasul case, the Bush administration was arguing that the Guantanamo detainees had no habeas corpus rights because Cuba, rather than the United States, was sovereign at Guantanamo Bay. So I knew a little bit about the history of when we took, when we got Guantanamo Bay, which is in 1898. And I was skeptical that Cuba could have been sovereign at a place that we took from Spain and then leased by shoving a treaty down Cuba's throat. Um, and I began to look into to that the, the history of the 1890s and learned that that the Bush administration claim was spurious. Um, but I also began to look more broadly. I had time, people encouraged me, and they said, what else do we know about Guantanamo Bay? And I did my, I consulted the, uh, the authorities, Google, Amazon, <laughs> and Widener Library, and I discovered we knew very little bit about it, both in this country, but also really even in Cuba and elsewhere. Cubans had published a few pieces on Guantanamo Bay that seemed to me to be highly ideological and, and, and debatable, contestable. Um, and I began to look back into the history and I discovered that Guantanamo Bay is interesting going way, way, way back. Um, I don't know how many of you know where we get the name of one of our great civic shrines in the United States, Mount Vernon. But we get the name for Mount Vernon from a British admiral <laughs> that George Washington's half-brother, Lawrence, served with, in Guantanamo for three months in 1741, um, and this suggested that Guantanamo, Guantanamo was woven into the fabric of American culture in ways that few of us understood. Um, and so I began there and have found that it remains interesting and problematic over time I guess one of the interesting questions that the history of Guantanamo raises is to what extent is what's going on in Guantanamo today an anomaly or not? Um, And I think Fitz can take some of this up with the question of torture. There's a long history of torture in the United States. Uh, On the other hand, we seem to be doing things with torture now that maybe we haven't always done, and certainly the propensity to write torture into law is new, so... Um, you know, Guantanamo has thrown me into discussions about about history and politics and so on.
1: So you'd like an apo- to see an apology?
4: Bah, sure. <laughs> uh, how about reparations? Uh, that is, uh, obviously, you, you all know that there are a few people in Guantanamo Bay that are guilty, probably, of terrorism. But there have been a whole host of people detained at Guantanamo Bay who are absolutely innocent. And so it seems to me that a, a mature nation could apologize and maybe even, even uh, I'm, I'm, I'm missing the words, so I'm attempting to say pay off, but to make amends, to make amends right, to reparate um, those people. Um, my sense with Guantanamo, Glenn is goading me to speak about um, a, an op-ed I just wrote for the London Guardian. Uh, and in, that, pe- in, in that, that op-ed, I say that we should actually keep Guantanamo Bay open and it's not that I like imperialism, as many of the people responded on the blog and said, "Give it back, you idiots, along with everything else you've ever taken." Um, <laughs> but but the, the thought there was that by keeping Guantanamo Bay open, first of all, you know some of you may have known, know that with the escalation of the war in the Middle East, we have been collecting more and more detainees. And my question to you is, where are we, keep, where are we taking them? How are we treating them? Who knows? At Guantanamo Bay over the last five or six years, at least the human rights community and the JAG community and others, that is the judge advocates, general lawyers of the military have brought a little transparency to Guantanamo Bay, right? We have some habeas rights at Guantanamo Bay, which we simply don't have elsewhere. So maybe we should acknowledge that and and finish the job there. If we're gonna be detaining people in the war on terror, let's make rules about the detainment and do it in the open. And I think, so far at least, doing so in Guantanamo would be better than the alternatives, Bagram Air Force Base and other places, black sites around the world that we know nothing about. Uh, Moreover, I think that to do that, to, to keep it open, to fix it, we would actually have to acknowledge what went on there. And that's what Glenn is alluding to. So I'm making the case that if we did it there, we would have to have a truth and reconciliation commission there to find out what really went on there and to really discuss the... Guantanamo's role in the bigger sort of archipelago or structure of American detention.
1: So Um, you're getting a sense already of how engaged with politics historians can be? Okay. Thank you, you, Jonah. And in a way, uh, Jonah's given us uh, a nice segue into the the new project you have. But I I thought um, I'd just mention the work that you've done on the history of lynching because in some ways that too connects up with what you're doing now. Uh, You've argued that even though lynching in the United States which claims somewhere between 4 and 5,000 victims, may appear as modest in scale by the standards of, the 20th century, of 20th century genocides, the atrocity of lynching has left an indelible mark on American life. For blacks, this is, this is from you, for blacks, lynching epitomised the hypocrisy of a nation that prided itself on respect for the natural rights of mankind. The history of lynching inspires pessimism and scepticism about the values of a society that could unleash the dark forces of mob violence. It also fosters a degree of hope that the demise of lynching at once has emancipated African Americans from a gnawing fear and at the same time demonstrated that descents into barbarism are not irreversible. i might quote that because I, you know, it's a very profound and complicated statement on um, the history of lynching and of violence in general in, in um, human history. So I, if you could talk to us a bit about how, I guess, your sense of the therapeutic value of, of project on lynching links with your um, work on torture or do you see them as separate projects tell us a bit about the, the new torture history so
5: that's project. A, that's a very interesting question uh, like others I, I certainly would like to thank everyone who's here it is very humbling to uh, to know that you're here but that some of you have actually paid money to hear us is it's <laughs> is, is, is very flattering But picking up on some of the things that you've heard, there there is a connection between my interest in in earlier research interest in lynching and uh, my new interest in the history of torture. And the link goes back to a moment in time. Roughly the same time that Jonathan was having his uh, awakening interest in the history of Guantanamo, I was struck by some of the political debates that took place once the Bush administration's policies on torture became known. And as you may know, there was a quote-unquote pushback from the United States Senate in particular to try to restrict the use of torture by the Bush administration that unfolded in 2004, 2005. And during that debate, there were various moments in time when noted American politicians made the point that Americans do not torture. And uh, if you're a cynic like me, your first response may be, well, that's absurd. That's just positively absurd. And having studied lynching, I know that there was a policy, uh, is the wrong word, there was a practice in the United States from the end of the Civil War on well into the 20th century, as late as the 1940s, of ritually executing particularly African-American men in ways that can only de- be described as involving torture. And so there was a practice that involved torture, and yet there were these noted politicians, and I think Jonathan's raised the crucial point. Something extraordinary happened in, after 9-11, and that is that the Bush administration consciously began to incorporate a pra- the practice of torture into state policy in a way that is completely unprecedented in American history. So coming back to some of the points that both Jim and David made, there is a history of torture that is present in American history, but it's unofficial, it's extra legal, it exists, it's behind a kind of semantic barrier in the United States. And then there is a history that we're familiar with from our law textbooks, from our constitutional histories in which torture is, for all practical purposes, specifically banned by the American Constitution. There are at least seven or eight state constitutions in the United States that specifically ban torture by state authorities, and there is a body of law to restrict police practices. So on the one hand, there is a a legal tradition that Americans and American politicians point to, appropriately enough, with pride. And yet there is a practice that has existed not just against African Americans in the, in the American South, but took place with police forces. And as recently as the mid, uh, the late 1990s, the Chicago Police Department was engaged in systematic torture of alleged criminals. So there's this, this, this if you will, this, this practice taking place that Americans don't acknowledge They have a variety of, we have a variety of names to describe it other than describing it as torture. And the relevance I think here is that at this extraordinary crisis in American history as a result of 9-11, there was for a moment in time a cluster of personalities and the development of of a policy, as I say, an unprecedented policy to actually stare torture in the face And imagine how the state could do it legally and do it appropriately, as they saw it. And as I say, this is a remarkable moment, which I think we could put in a broader international context. There are other societies. I'm thinking of Israel, for example, who has confronted this issue. But for Americans, it's a particularly galling issue because it confronts the ideas of American exceptionalism. And so when Senator John McCain, who himself was a victim of torture during the Vietnam War, pounds on a lectern in the US Senate and says, we do not torture, he's speaking to what he wishes was to be the case, and I think he believes it to be the case. But as we've seen in recent history, it has migrated from being this subterranean practice to being a practice, as I say, of official state policy. And so now the Obama administration and Americans have to unwind this, and figure out how to reconcile this vision of American exceptionalism with this recent history, which has punctured all sorts of holes in there in our notion of American exceptionalism.
1: Thank you. Can't wait for the book to come out. Oh, I can't either. All right.
5: Hurry up, right? <laughs> Hurry
1: up, okay. Well and we're going to turn now uh, to the one politician amongst us, historian politician. But before I ask you a question, I thought do you want to told me a little story this afternoon, and you might want to just relate your tourism around Sydney.
4: Okay. Um, I'd thrown those <laughs> notes away. Um, well, I had been running today on the circular quay, and.
5: Um, he wants you to know how healthy he actually,
4: actually, to be fair, I was walking <laughs> by this point. Um, and, and just by the, what do you call it, the grand staircase. Um, commemorating, by the way, the visit of the Great White Fleet to, to Australia in 1908, and beneath a tree, commemorating the visit of Bill Clinton to Australia in 1996, November, proving, I guess, that history is indeed sedimentary, um, <laughs> was a, a, a placard and a monument, right? Um, commemorating, I suppose, or recognizing the trauma of 9-11 with uh, Bob Carr's name on the bottom, um, I guess dedicated 35 days after 9-11. And um, I I think the title, if I've got this right, was An Affirmation of Unity in Adversity. Um, And that just took me back to 9-11. 9-11, some of you may remember, uh, occurred on a day much like this, um, a, an absolutely stunningly beautiful day and the immediate aftermath of 9-11 as if nature was playing some sort of cruel game with us. Day after day after day after day after day was equally beautiful. So there was no way to hide the smoke from the smoldering buildings of 9-11. No way to sort of disguise our own grief. Um, and I remember in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 there were calls for unity in the United States too. And... and I don't, I don't begrudge the calls for unity. I don't question them here. I imagine they were generous and sincere, but the ones in the United States gave me the heebie-jeebies, right, because we had calls for unity. At the same time, you could already see policies, bad policies, unfolding, and also uh, uh, a tendency to sweep history away. Ruled absolutely out of court in the United States post 9/11. you guys may remember this, were any historical, rational explanations for what had happened, This was an event caused by evil, right? And the only explanations were metaphysical, not historical, not rational. Um, In fact, it was a stunning history war in which historians had been silent. Now, we've been proving here over the course of the last 10 days or so that you can't keep historians silent for very long.
5: Um,
4: And and we began to fight back and, and so on and so forth. But it just just reminded me that, you know, unity obviously can come at an interesting cost.
1: Well, I was going to say, if this was a tutorial, i would be now Uh, stressing the themes of transnational memory, I think, and uh, patriotism as well. But we can go turn to those later. What about the local context here? So when I introduced you as history premier, I should have noted that you're not the first or last Australian politician to be actively engaged with the political implications of history. And it was under the history prime minister, John Howard, that uh, the history wars became prime time. And so, for me, the question I mean, one of the interesting questions for me is how other politicians saw the history, have seen the history wars, and how did, how did you situate yourself in the history wars, and did you feel engaged by them, uh, given your broader interest in uh, curricula and, in, and your, history, your interest in American history more generally?
6: Well, the first thing is I was determined to see that history did not perish in the New South Wales school system as it had in the school system of every other state. Uh, There it was, uh, debauched, dumbed down, merged with with other studies. Um, We continued to teach history as a discipline, history is history. Now, the rest of Australia is catching up with us through a new national curriculum that I'm assured is going to have the best features of the uh, New South Wales curriculum. But if you're a political leader for a land like this, you walk through history all the time. So we're a multicultural society. The Chinese is the biggest community, non-English-speaking community. Chinese is the second language in our city now. Replaced, it, uh, It pulled ahead of Italian some years back. And in dealing and working with the leadership of that community, I would talk about how the Chinese had made a contribution to Australia in the 19th century, as in the United States, transcontinental railway built with Chinese labour. You, you can talk about the British and Chinese story of nation-building in the 19th century in Australia. And that's, that, that was me as a political leader saying to this vast Chinese community, now, which is now, now such a strong presence in Australia, you, you, you were part of, part of this story before you suspected it.
1: So for you, in a a sense, participating in history is about a global picture and the history wars were very parochial. They they weren't focused. I mean, I think all of that history, multicultural history, if you want to call it, or that interest in the different kinds of histories that come together when you bring people together from different parts of the world, has not been on the agenda. It hasn't been on the agenda for quite a while. I I I agree with
6: the, the transnational focus here. The displacement, the dispossession... Of indigenous Australians was a reflection on this continent of what happened in South America, North America and Africa as a result of a, a huge impulse coming out of Europe beginning in 1492. There was nothing like it. The diseases and the energy, the civilization, and the barbarism of medieval Europe surging out of the Iberian Peninsula and with, within an astonishingly short space of time grabbing four continents for itself and murdering local people and, 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 and seizing their land and introducing diseases that, that uh, wipe them out and, and saying their cultures were of no value. And what happened to Australian Aborigines was part of a, an utterly global phenomenon. Behind every great nation li- lies a, a great crime... And in visiting, the, um, visiting the, the institution in New York that, that you're one of the trustees of, uh, the New York Historical Society, I saw in a, a, a very arresting exhibition about slavery and in, in, uh, in New York, and it made the point about the dispossession of the Native American people of the Southeast. There were two crimes involved here, a whole nation being dispossessed and forced westward so its lands could be seized. And the second crime was the lands were seized to introduce plantation slavery.
1: But that's not the history that someone like John Howard wanted taught particularly. Or in the history wars, there were two sides, weren't there? So you wanted Australian history to be on the curriculum, but was there a particular version of that history? No, but my
6: version, my, my approach to us, my approach to us accommodating this... Is this. Australian history comprises not one narrative, but many narratives. And that gives us the way of accommodating the triumphs of European Australia. The fact is, as as some historians have said, by 1830 we'd taken a convict settlement and we'd turned it into something that was beginning to move towards self government, high living standards, and by the standards of the world at that time, some respect for working people, working class people. We can accommodate that story, but the story of the disease and the dispossession of the original occupants and custodians of this land. There's triumph and there's tragedy. There's a the huge triumph of Indigenous people in that they survived the dispossession and the disease and they lived today the despite everything thrown at them. And there are the failures of white settlement, the collapse of of our environment in the semi-arid zone, the environmental wreckage of Murray-Darling, the collapse of closer settlement in the 1920s, soldier farmers, and failures like Gallipoli and the fall of Singapore. Triumphs and failures on both sides, but our history comprises many different stories and they overlap and they jostle and they compete and they contradict. But that's why we love history. It's such an an opaque mess.
1: I'd take his class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes,
3: yes yeah I you say, what, say
1: something and then we'll
3: to have a politician in the United States who talked like this yeah. <laughs> may, may, I say, may I say
2: briefly and Bob I'm not putting, maybe I'm putting you on the spot <clears throat> I don't think it's possible for an elected official in the United States to say the sentence you said that behind every great nation there's a great crime Absolutely. Now, we've had a couple who have tried certainly to face our past of slavery President Clinton did uh, President Obama certainly is, his recent visit to Ghana and so forth. But that statement you can't say in the United States. It goes to your point about American exceptionalism, all that we've said here about our sense of pride. The fact that you threw that off as an assumption would not happen in the United States. What that says about us, we could debate all night. Uh, but I, I, and, and frankly, that is the kind of honesty that we need about our own history. Slavery was a crime against humanity. But it's only been recently that we would even debate whether we discuss it in that category. Uh, so I, um, well, I'm going to take that sentence back. I run a center for the study of slavery. And I might put that on our website, actually.
0: Could I
5: just jump in? I, I, I think, like David, that's a really remarkable comment to make, but here is, I think, the way in which the historical moment we live in for American global leadership, whatever form that may take, may mark a very interesting transition. Barack Obama cannot lecture the world on human rights in the way that previous presidents could. And there was a time, for example, in the 1970s when torture became a major concern of the United Nations. Amnesty International had already existed, but there was a major push to deal with authoritarian torture around the world. The United States could lecture on high, appropriately or not, as a society where torture was not present. Barack Obama cannot go out in the world and scold whether it be well, Argentina isn't torturing right now as far as we know, but he can't scold Argentina for its past in the same way he could. He can't scold many countries in the world. So he's got a deal, if you will, with the fact that the United States has now sinned. And he has to incorporate that into the way in which he tries to rebuild American leadership, which one of two things is going to happen, I predict. And as a historian, I shouldn't do this, but I predict one of two things based on everything you've heard. Either he will do it skillfully and in a way that transforms American leadership in the global community, transnational environment, or else we're gonna have to return to an age of innocence somehow, and this past that we've been talking about will have to be tamped back down again.
2: And the past tells us we probably will
6: return. If If you wanted to make a point about what an Australian political leader could say here, but an American leader could not say, the key reference is Paul Keating's Redfin speech. Uh-huh. That was when an Australian Prime Minister got up and quoted an historian, Henry Reynolds, if uh-huh. I remember correctly. I was there and I seem to remember him quoting Henry Reynolds, the murmuring in our, our hearts, and um, said, of course we've got to take responsibility because it's the whites who seize land, who introduced diseases, who murdered people. And uh, it'd be interesting to have a look at that text to... Develop the argument that things can be said in other nations that couldn't be said in the US.
1: Okay, by this stage I think that many of you will have something you'd like to ask uh, speakers or say, So, um, and of course uh, we'll keep the discussion going as um, openly as it has so far. I'm going to step to the side so I can see you. Uh, we've got some microphones over here. So anyone who'd like to come down? Someone coming down now.
0: Um, I'd just like to hear any comments from the panel about how optimistic they are about America's chances of regaining that moral
3: authority. Uh, I I think probably, uh, certainly most of the people on this panel and most professional historians have, most professional American historians have a very... um, ambivalent relationship with our subject, right? We care deeply about America and American history. We wouldn't be doing this. And yet we see the uses to which history is put, and we see the conduct of our uh, nation globally, and we cringe. And so I think probably my initial reaction to that and I think the initial reaction of most of my other panelists, they can speak for themselves, is we're not very hopeful. Uh, I think we tend to cynicism. And we, um, you know, it's you – know, it's not, cynicism's not in fashion right now in the early days of the springtime of Obama. But uh, we'll see where this thing goes. But one thing I did want to say, you know, so I think most of – most people of our ilk tend to be very skeptical of American claims to having any kind of moral leadership in the world. I think we would – in in a sense, probably jumped down your throat with the question, who says we ever had it? And yet, one of the things that has struck me over the last, say, five, six, seven years uh, is that it is useful in the world to have a United States that can actually speak in a way that isn't, you know, obviously ridiculous about human rights that there have been a variety of uh, situations in the world where the United States' inability to actually speak plausibly in defense of human rights uh, has been, and I'm thinking any number of places, but certainly uh, the crisis in Israel-Palestine is one. Um, So I actually think that the world, the, the, the kind of community of nations is actually going to be a better place or is better off if there is a United States that actually can assert some kind of moral leadership. The problem is, is every time it's ever tried to do this, uh, it dons again, as David said, this mantle of innocence and then pursues its own interests. So I, I'm not sure that we can ever do this, but I, I actually i am um, hopeful in this sense, or at least desperately hopeful that somehow there can be some restoration of American credibility and that the United States might be able to speak again in the kind of uh, councils of the world on behalf of the rights of human beings without it being absurd on its face.
2: Well, just very briefly, I fit every stereotype of a historian that Jim just described, cynic and so on and so forth, and I I don't even like the word optimism. But I will... (laughs) But I will declare myself hopeful on this... The three places I've been abroad just in the past eight months include a London train station um, the week after Obama was elected where I think an African-born clerk selling me my ticket saw my Obama button and practically began to weep. She high-fived me. She said, it's a new day in the world. I mean, I couldn't believe myself. I'd never been treated that way in a train station abroad. Uh, I was in England a month ago at a conference about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, called the global lincoln people speaking about lincoln from all over the world it was extraordinary how much obama came up and then here i was on at least five radios programs today and in all but one case the person interviewing me when the thing was over wanted to talk about america's new image in the world and i thought i didn't bring it up they did That's extraordinary. Now, those are only anecdotal. But I think one of the most important things about our current president is what he has the chance to do about our image abroad. Now, like any other president in the past, his success or failure at that is going to depend on events and depend on also policy and economics. Uh, But his recent speech in Cairo uh, to to the Muslim world I think is one of the most extraordinary things he has done. Um, and I think at some point we may be speaking about a pre Cairo, post Cairo uh, uh, American presence <laughs> in, in the world. At least so there, that's hopefulness.
7: Jonna,
1: and then we'll go to the next question, sir. You wait? Okay.
7: Professor Blight, I've recently been listening to your Civil War course on iTunes and oh thoroughly my enjoying it. Oh, goodness. I was thank wondering you. if you could explain a little about the decision to make that available online and free of charge and what oh. implications you think that has for public history.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I get emails every week now from people. Well, to be very brief, Yale University has now videotaped some 20 or 25 lecture courses at our university, which they put on a website free of charge to the world. You can watch all these lectures. You can get the reading list. And so it's a, it's a decision made by Yale to internationalize what we do. Uh, I believe there are some plans to help universities, particularly in third world countries, actually use these to give credit for courses. But I, I'm, I at first, was actually quite skeptical of doing it, largely because I wasn't sure I wanted my lectures out on the web and I was also afraid my own students in the subsequent years would simply stay in bed <laughs> and not come to my class. But the response has been overwhelming. I get emails every week from all corners of the world of people. And sometimes I get lots of questions. So um, it's an attempt to send American history, in my case, out around the world. And um, now I'm all for it. So thank you for watching. I'm sorry for all the flubs I make sometimes in I have lectures. Are you ready
5: to ask a question?
4: Good evening. Thank
5: you. Um, I've got three questions. Just, just, anyone like to pick them up? And uh, very short questions. I don't know about the answers. <clears throat> the Civil War, was that some, simply a failure of uh, di-
4: diplomacy, political skill? Two
2: that 's got a short answer.
4: Fourteenth <laughs> <laughs> Amendment. is that only for Americans, American citizens,
3: mm.
4: and the reparation for the slavery is that a dead issue, or is there any chance that that can be fired up and, and maybe maybe some payments made? Thank you,
2: you, you take through? Through.
3: Um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll pick the last one up very quickly. Um, One of the things when we were doing this research, we we did a lot of research into the history of the reparations issue, and part of what sort of surprised me is that it's not a new issue. It sort of caught a lot of Americans by surprise around the turn of the century, but it goes back all the way to the late 18th century with the the so-called first emancipation, the, the abolition of slavery, the beginning of abolition of slavery in the northern states. Uh, It's repeated on a much greater scale in the aftermath of the Civil War with the the 13th Amendment and the abolition of slavery in the United States. What are these people who for hundreds of years have had their labor expropriated without pay entitled to, not only by way of recompense, but in order to make it possible for them to live as citizens in the United States? And, of course, uh, you know, the, the... The sort of short phrase that encapsulates that from the air is 40 acres and a mule. The enslaved people's notion formerly enslaved people's notion that they would be equipped with grants of land that would allow them to have some kind of uh, carve out some kind of independent existence and the failure to deliver that after the Civil War uh, virtually ensured I think that that the formerly enslaved people would be ultimately find themselves once again dependent on the good offices of their former owners. Um, the issue comes up in litigation in political movements in the late 19th century at various moments, very dramatically in the 1960s when a group, a number of different black nationalist organizations, press for reparations. Uh, I think now with the you know the the sort of movement of that into Uh, litigation in the 90s and the early 2000s, that has proved a dead end. Unless you think that there's going to be a very, very dramatic transformation in the personnel of the federal courts, that particular, the notion of of obtaining monetary reparations uh, for enslavement um, through litigation, I think that is a dead end. What has been interesting, however, is that The kind of publicity and agitation that the movement brought up, I think, helped produce what happened at Brown. And it has produced similar kinds of institutional investigations at some leading American corporations. J.P. Morgan is one, Etna Insurance is one, and now almost a dozen American universities, a number of states. So that part of what has happened is though the reparations themselves haven't been paid, and I think it is, I don't think they ever will be paid if you think of these in purely monetary terms, the, the political sort of ferment unleashed by that has led to a variety of institutional investigations, apologies in some cases, and some substantive, meaningful reparative action, even if it's not delivering checks to individuals. And so I think I, mean, I think that, it, in a sense, that will continue.
1: So maybe one, one question per person, because there's quite a few. We can come back to some of them. Think? Yeah,
3: um, you've heard the, the history wars here, the dealings sure. between the Aborigines and the, and the white people. Uh, what are the history wars uh, in America? Well, our history
2: wars have had a great deal to do with how we tell the story. Uh, do we teach the young about slavery? Do we teach our young about the murder and slaughter of Native Americans in the Western Indian Wars? Do we dredge up the great contra- conflicts between capital and labor at the turn of the 20th century? Or do we tell an essentially positive, progressive exceptional story uh, so it's on the level of what kind of story we are teaching but more specifically it has had to do with women's history black history, the history of violence um, uh, how, how indeed we, we interpret these most conflicted and vexing aspects of our past uh, they have, they've sprung up over national history standards uh, we had a huge debate over that in the early 1990s They've come up over how to uh, commemorate the Colombian quincentennial. They've come up over virtually every major anniversary that we have. Uh, We're as anniversary conscious, maybe more so than as anyone else in the world. Uh, So our history wars have been actually quite similar to yours uh, in terms of tone and content. I
1: think think what we'll do now is uh, take a, a series of questions. Hmm. Because there's so many of you, we'll take the ones all on this side first, and we'll go to, over there, and then we'll give the panel a chance to to pick up on them. The Fourteenth Amendment
2: would protect you too if you were visiting, by the way. <laughs> Quite as much as U.S. Okay. citizens.
4: Aha. Uh-huh. I um sorry, I was just wondering about the. Uh, you mentioned the monetary repatriations and the institutional sort of investigations. I was wondering about other. Sort of ways, sort of other manifestations of repatriation. Sort of like, um, was it the?
3: Uh, God, I can't get the name now. Um, was it, uh, in terms of other forms of making re- like, repair and so making perhaps yeah, Whether or not that was still
1: an issue.
5: And mm.
3: I mean, this, that's, an actually, that's a fascinating question. Are, are, we're going to take a bunch? Should we take a bunch? Yeah, we I think up? we take
1: a bunch. I'll take that's a fine. list, Go just ahead. in case. Sorry. My question is directed more specifically to Mr. Carr regarding the um, development of a national curriculum for history. I'm just wondering what you think or what you hope will come from the current atmosphere of um, cynicism and honesty in both politics and history here and abroad and how it might affect the content and the Structure of the curriculum
6: for Australia. Okay. And elsewhere. Well, 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 I've learned. Oh, sorry, you want us to speak later?
1: Well, I, I, go ahead, Bob. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
6: I haven't lost these qualities of bossiness. Um, I, I, I think a couple of a couple of things I've learned. You can't teach everything in teaching Australian history. You can't cover every motif, every development. A lot of interest groups think think it's vital that you tell their story, but you've got to be selective. Second. A teacher said to me, a classroom teacher said to me, it's got to pass the hot, humid Thursday afternoon test. <laughs> You're familiar with classrooms, you know what that means. And third, um, how much do we get? We get, a, it wasn't it, a, 100 a hours of Australian history over two years in the middle years of, middle years of high school? It, it's just, it, it, it must be selective. You must focus on case studies. My final, my final observation is that, as we put a national curriculum together, it must be crammed with argument, paradox, controversy, contradiction. This is not a story of, of civics uplift. Every chapter is not to end with the sentence, and once again, the Australian people demonstrated that they could adapt and triumph over any circumstance. <laughs> You as students, the students here, know that that is deadening and you'd walk out of the classroom rather than put up with more of it. Take American history, and I'll conclude with this, the story of the 1920s in America. If you, if you, if you teach it as civic uplift, you'll leech it of all interest. This was, this was a period that saw intense class conflict. This was a period that... You
2: can't that's say that in America either. <laughs>
6: This, 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 this saw intense class conflict. It saw lynching. It saw the KKK rampant. It saw entrenched. It saw a strengthening of Jim Crow laws throughout the South. Hmm? Immigration, and and immigration. Uh, immigration restriction. And uh, the,
3: this was a, you've picked a great decade. Yeah. <laughs> the red scare, well, the red listen, scare, that's right.
6: listen, doesn't it become interesting it sure at does. that point? And that's the key. They're, 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 the, the, they're the lessons that I'd like to have guide the construction of a national curriculum. Can we you can't. New South Wales.
1: Now we're recruiting you.
7: <laughs> 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 Okay.
6: Senator Obama was actually in
8: favour of recognising the Armenian massacre of 1915 as a genocide. And President Obama is having far more difficulty in doing so that's because great. of the complexity in relation to right. Turkey. Uh, I'd like your comments on
6: that. And secondly, to what extent can someone impose truth and
8: reconciliation on another society and how effective will the president be in that?
1: They're okay. so going to be ready to answer that soon. So, uh, Professor Virginia?
8: Um, in Australia,
4: the history was, I, I see it as sort of being an argument between sort of old political legal versions of history that focus on the political elite and the sort of new approaches that are focused on culture. Um, at the moment, there's a, um, there's a debate in Australia over whether Australia should have a, um, a Bill of Rights. And I know that Bob Carr is um, a very public, a, a publicly opposed to that. Um, I just wonder in sort of, and I know that in, with the knowledge that historians often use court cases to um, find the minority view um, and things like that, I wonder how um, a Bill of Rights have affected you in your approach to history.
1: Okay, and uh, we we'll take some more over here. Perhaps two more over there and then we'll fill some questions.
9: Um, outside the State Library of New South Wales is a statue of Richard Burke, and on the inscription there is the word enterprise spelt with a Z, or as the Americans say, with a Z, and this was set up in 1840. Now, of course, we know no longer uh, use, a, uh, we use an enterprise with an S now, but this illustrates the divergence of the two traditions of, um, from a British source one, the American, and the secondly, the British. Australian, New Zealand, the Commonwealth tradition or British Empire tradition. Now, with matters which have been raised tonight, we can see why there has been a divergence since 1840, the date of the, Scott, the statue. One is, on the American side, the Civil War, the Great Immigrations and then uh, various matters during do in the 20th century, and on the British Empire side, of course, Great Reforms of the Victorian period. So I'm really raising this as a matter of, of discussion of this concept of that we began, let's say, um, uh, in the same tradition, but now we are quite different um, 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 peoples, despite speaking the same language and having an overall sort of English culture. I just want to raise that point okay. for discussion. Thank,
1: Thank you. you. And one more from there, and then we'll come back. Uh, thank you. Uh,
5: recently uh, I went to Atlanta and I was talking to an African-American man who said he voted for John McCain because he felt that he could talk to John McCain if he ever met him and demand 40 acres and a mule. Whereas with um, Obama he felt he'd just get turned away and say well now the issue is settled. There's nothing more to talk about. Um, so I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, you know, uh, how right is he or not? Um, but also, what is Obama looking to do in civil rights and um, human rights in the future? And um, yeah, because he doesn't talk about that a hell of a lot. So, okay.
1: all right, pick and choose. There you go. Uh, Fitz. Yep.
5: Repeat the questions for us quickly here. Or there. These, okay. They were they were all great questions, yeah, but I just want to be reminded.
1: Well, people are getting agitated by the uh, Armenia question, right. and genocide. Do you want okay, to well
5: answer? that's that's one where I would just make a brief comment on that. Uh, we were talking before about uh, moral leadership of the United States and how we historians are all cynics, and uh, I think that Obama is likely to tack back and forth as he will and as he has done throughout his political career. And I think he will disappoint us, depending on where you stand on many issues. But on the other hand, he is so self-conscious, it seems, and reflective about himself, both as an individual, but also as as a leader, that he will not ignore the issue. And so he will constantly, so for example, with the Armenian issue, he will constantly be trying to figure out how to deal with the issue, but he will not try to ignore it the way, for example, President Bush ignored many issues. And so in that regard, I think it'll be very interesting to watch him deal with, I could run through a long list. For example, we have just gone through a period of time of a whole series of violations of human rights in China that would seem to have aroused, to demand some sort of commentary. But we did not hear Obama say anything of note on the Uyghurs. We have not heard Obama say anything of note on the issue of Tibet. He's going to deal with those issues in his own very carefully controlled way. But I'm convinced he will, he will feel the pressure to incorporate this into this ongoing process of trying to rehabilitate the United States image in the international community.
4: Um, This is sort of a general comment on American ideology, Um, and it may speak to some of this. Some of you may remember back in the presidential campaign, Obama spoke about how America – a new America could change the world – and I thought that that was sort of a telling and somewhat alarming comment that we were gonna change the world as if the world was waiting for us to change it. Um, and, and I think that Obama is keenly aware and, of and sometimes blind to the way in which America's fundamental liberal ideology has both a sort of human rights capacity to it. It's universal, right? Human rights are universal. There are things that all people uh, deserve and all people will have if he gets his way. At the same time, that right—that kind of universalist thinking is often non-reciprocal. America has what's good for the world. You are like us. And there's a, there's a sort of fundamental tension there that I think in these examples that Fitz is alluding to, um, you see Obama just trying to get this exactly right. America's liberal political ideology, its political economy is full of tension. I go to Cuba and go to conferences, and at these conferences Cubans debate whether George Bush first, but now Obama, is in the Middle East for the oil, or whether he's in the Middle East to save it, which is problematic in itself. And, and, and my sense is it's typically always both with the United States. That is, it's, those things go together, it's not realism versus idealism in American history, often, but the two things go together. It's part of who we are. It's part of who our sense of people are. And I think that it's in Obama's f- political philosophy as much as it was in Bush's, and I think it will manifest itself in different ways. And, and, and ideally, there, there, there's a tradition of reciprocity in liberalism that I think has not been gotten its proper airtime and I think that Obama has a keener sense of it, and in the speech that David's alluding to, there's a sense that in Obama, and I think this is its saving grace that the that the Muslim world for for example, has as much to teach us as we have to teach it, but that wasn't there in Obama's statement about how we're going to save the world, and it certainly wasn't there in george Bush's ideology and, and, and politics in the Middle East. So I think that Obama does have a sense of that, but, but, but it's going to be a problematic, and it's, it's in all of us, um, and it makes us uh, generous and also predatory.
2: A very quick response to your Atlanta gentleman, or your question about the Atlanta gentleman. First of all, nobody's going to give him his 40 acres and a mule, but he may have reflected what really did happen in our campaign, as you may remember. A great number of African-American leaders were really supporting Hillary Clinton. Now, some of that had to do with their own personal ties to the Clintons, but it also had to do with a deep, ingrained grained attitude in African-American politics and history that you will get a great deal more out of the white politicians who need to give you something than you may ever get out of one of your own. I have personal friends who, who were supporting Hillary Clinton uh, till the bitter end in part for those reasons. And at the bitter end, a whole wave of of black political leaders in the United States, and and even academics that I know, suddenly came over to Obama. So he he may have been part of that phenomenon that was actually quite widespread, an old idea that you may get the best from a white politician who needs to do something, whereas Obama does not. I want
3: to pick up, there's so many things on the table. there's actually a book called The History Wars, uh, which is... Uh, there's now one in Australia, I gather, but that it's a and we're going to do a conference
2: on this at Yale comparing the two. Uh, no, it's, it's, a it's a bit dated now. It's a bit dated now, but it's
3: a good introduction to some of the history wars in the United States. And two, one has been alluded to, which was you talk about you know creating a national curriculum, national history standards. There was an attempt to do that in the 1990s, and it just was like setting off a hand grenade. Um, and that was what revealed the extent to which some influential people in the country did not want to hear what a group of historians now thought the new narrative of American history was. And it wasn't simply that it was a more inclusive history that talked about women and talked about slavery and African Americans and acknowledged the realities of lynching and what have you. Uh, it was just, it, it, it was too dark for them. It lacked the triumphalism. As it happened, uh, the head of the National Endowment for the Humanities at that time was Lynn Cheney, wife you might have heard of her husband. And, and, uh, And it was the Cheneys, really, who led the charge against this, accusing American historians of only wanting to sort of turn over the dark underside and forgetting what was good and noble. This exploded then in one specific example that just distills this, uh, in 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, end of the dropping of the atomic bomb, and the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum planned an exhibition about the Enola Gay, which was the bomber, that the the superfortress that had dropped the bomb over Hiroshima, and that exhibition was virtually scrubbed because of the outcry. What the what the museum curators wanted to include was the fact that. World War II had seen strategic bombing of civilians, that lots of people had been killed at Hiroshima and so forth, and there was the, there were a variety of Republican groups, veterans groups that didn't want any part of that in the exhibition. They merely wanted a celebratory history. So this then touches one other thing I want to speak about briefly. So Americans tend to be, at least until recently, and it's changing, I think, but at least until recently, very reluctant to visit the darker corners of their own history. But we love nothing more than visiting the dark corners of other people's history (laughs) and demanding self-righteously that they face them. So, uh, So at the very time when people who were advocating slavery reparations, for example, we're getting nowhere in the United States, the U.S. Congress was passing a resolution demanding that the government of Japan issue a formal apology and pay monetary reparations to so-called comfort women, chiefly Korean women, who had been forced during the Second World War to serve as sex slaves by the Japanese Imperial Army. With no sense of irony, right, that somehow, you you know, that sauce for the goose. The Armenian one, then, is a... Absolutely wonderful example Um, that uh, the Armenian, you know, whether or not what happened in the years 1915 to 1917 represents a genocide is, as you know, a subject of enormous dispute in Turkey. In fact, to say that those events constituted a genocide, and I think they did, Uh, means that you are guilty under Turkish law of the crime of denigrating Turkishness and and vulnerable to up to three years in jail. Uh, This got a lot of Americans much riled, particularly uh, Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House, whose district has a large number of Armenian Americans in it. And so there was this uh, bill put forward that the U.S. Congress would demand that, demanding that the government of Turkey acknowledge the events of 1915 to 1917 as a genocide. Well, imagine the, the response if the government of Turkey passed legislation demanding that the government of the United States acknowledge what happened to Native Americans or to African Americans as a genocide. Um, the funny secret, or sort of final coda to the Armenian controversy Uh, was that the government of Turkey said, sure, go ahead and pass this legislation and all supply routes and airspace that you're using to supply your troops uh, in Iraq that go through Turkey are closed. And when the government of Turkey said that, the uh, legislation fell away. Okay. I some very patient people over
1: there, so we're going to take some more questions. Yeah, but they've been sitting a long time, so... Um,
7: Look, going back a bit further, I'm just curious to know why, uh, as a family historian with lots of convicts in my background, I'm curious to know why Americans, with their family histories, never, there are no convicts mentioned pre-independence, American independence, where the convicts were going when they were going to America.
9: Is there any reason
7: why... (laughs) Uh, see, I, I've, uh, so that we don't I'm like... actually from the first Muslim family that came to Australia that I discovered, and they were... He was a convict too, a convict family, and I'm just, I, I just loved the story when I found out, and I just... Uh, I, well, I'm writing the book at the moment, so I'm just curious to know why they are never mentioned in American history.
6: If I can add to the question, Savannah was a convict colony. Yeah. A precursor Georgia. of Sydney and Bepple. the other convict colonies here. I just wonder if there are any people around Savannah who would boast that they they arrived with uh, with uh, criminal right. records to uh, serve as convicts. I've Do they
7: wear it as a badge read of honour? Any family history in what? America that has a convict in it. Just
5: a, it's a short, immediate response is that uh, the two kind of founding myths are, of course, that the Pilgrims were these. Under, uh, the Pilgrims were, of course, a tiny and largely unsuccessful colony, followed then by Puritans in Massachusetts. They, the, the narrative there is that these are people fired by religious zeal, so I don't think they would be wanting to admit that there they were convicts present there. But in the case further south, then you get the Cavalier myth, and this is an entirely different in the kind of popular mythology, even up to the present day the settlers of the southern colonies aren't convicts going to Georgia. They are aristocratic youth moving to the south to reestablish the family lines and then to found these plantations. So, no, I don't think convicts would usually be – there's no romance to convicts in the United States.
1: But see what happens when you bring Australian history and American history together. There's a whole, you know, inventory of new conferences. I,
5: I will just say one thing about American genealogists. There used to be the major impulse was to get you into the Daughters of the American Revolution or these genteel societies. But now there are often, for many states, are these wonderful books called the Black Books of Genealogy where you can find out the names of everybody who was executed by the state, everybody who was the criminals. And so you can't identify the darker secrets of... Of your family, but whether people boast about that, I don't know.
8: Right, uh, I'm, a, I'm also a student from uh, China, Manan, and uh, my discipline in university is engineering, but I have a, do have a greater uh, interest about history. So my question is: To what extent uh, the religion just contribute to our ideology and to the conflicts uh, around the world now?
1: Perhaps if you take that in the context of the history wars in America, what role does religion played in the history
5: wars? I'm firing that one at Jonathan. Wow. You mentioned William James. The <laughs> a variety
2: <of> religious experience. <laughs>
8: wow. <laughs> 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 uh, Do we want to take another a question? We? For a while. Okay, we'll take another yeah, question. May, maybe this is a little bit uh, uh, general, but I just want to be a little bit specific is I have uh, just read some words. Maybe that is, is a quotation from a Jewish book. And it says that uh, human engineers and architects. So is that sort of engineers, uh, so, so, oh, sorry, sort of ideologies? That some races, some ethnics I believe, and they do have the competence to do something to affect the world.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to ponder that one because that's a little bit of a question.
3: Just one quick quick crack at it. Uh, The United States is uh, historically a Protestant nation, and that's been a very central part of its identity, even though, in theory, we pride ourselves on a constitution which disestablished religion and, and. Ensure that there would, no be form, there would be no formal establishment of religion by the government. That's what our Constitution tells us. Um, it is, in the standards of sort of developed countries, it is such an outlier. It's a staggering outlier compared to European countries. I can't speak to Australia. In terms of the number of people who go to church weekly, um, it's, you know, two, three, four, five times higher than any other, Euro, any other kind of modern industrialized nation. Uh, so, and religion informs our politics and the kind of culture wars in the United States spectacularly, certainly around issues like abortion would be that would be an obvious one, but uh, all kinds of issues about sex education in the schools and so forth so um, so there are there are a lot of it. there are there's a kind of very vital still Protestant and evangelical political impulse in our politics that I think is very hard for for Europeans and I would imagine for Australians who visit to get their minds around because there's not anything comparable in their experience. The other thing that I think is is relevant to this is we just had a conference here that we participated in with some of you I'm sure um, around historical memory and one of the phrases that got bandied about a bit was America's civil religion, right? That there is, there is in addition to, not, not a kind of churches, but, but Americans have a kind of, under, are steeped in an understanding of our history that is itself religious, that, that this is a providential nation whose destiny is, uh, you know, is part of the redemption of not just of this land but of all the world. And I think, you know, you see that in the, you see the kind of convergence of that kind of millenarian and American civil religion and a kind of quite parochial evangelical Protestant religion in the Bush administration in a variety of ways.
2: Ronald Reagan used to say, and he meant it and he was very serious, that when you get to heaven, it will be guarded by two United States Marines. <laughs> now... Quite serious. That kind of rhetoric has deep, deep resonance in American culture. Um, now,
1: that's a wonderful. I image. don't know.
2: You'll have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs>
5: it's
1: a wonderful image to end on. And I've been told we now have to, we do have to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, the speakers will be here for a few minutes. If you want to come up and ask them anything, we I like
9: our bill of mind. rights, by the way. All right.
3: yeah. But I'd yeah. like to. Bill th- of rights are a good idea. Yeah.
6: <laughs> It's, it's very funny, then, that uh, America, America had slavery for all those years after enacting a Bill of Rights That's in true. 1791, One of our where, whereas, whereas in Britain it was abolished under the common law in 1760.
1: This is all going to go on at the, at the That's top. That's why we
3: do comparative
6: history.
1: <laughs> okay. I think we know that Obama should be reading the books of all of these historians here. And I am personally going to get onto that Wikipedia page for Bob Carr and I'm going to cross off the bit that says citation needed and you don't need it. And I'm going to add a new quote about the model of a modern political thinker. There you go. Hey, that. Oh, historian. Thank you very much for coming along.